Welcome to this bonus episode of The Breach Show. I'm the show's host, Donia Ziai. This week, we're doing just a podcast. We had a COVID case in our production team, so doing a video show wasn't possible. But we'll be back next week with both our video and podcast. Today, we're airing a conversation we recorded a few weeks ago with our usual team, Pam Palmiter, Elle Jones, and Martin Lukacs. Pam is a Mi'kmaq lawyer, professor, and author in Toronto. Elle is a poet, educator, and organizer. She's in Halifax. And Martin's a journalist and the managing editor of The Breach. He's in Montreal with me. In today's episode, we'll be talking about two subjects, defund the police and land back. Both of them demands that social movements have pushed into mainstream political discourse over the last few years. We're going to take stock of where these movements are at today and where they might be going next. Thanks for tuning in. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to like, rate, and share this podcast. It really helps. Here's the conversation. We're going to start with Defend the Police. Over the last two years, we've seen the rise of the Defend the Police movement um, happening alongside the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. And it's created a huge shift in popular opinion. There's now in Canada a clear majority of people who support defunding the police and redirecting that spending towards other public services like uh, mental health supports and so on. And I want to start with you because you've just gone through this process with the Halifax Police Board. You were leading a team there um, that produced this 200-page report, you know, the first of its kind in Canada, um, that was laying out in full detail what defunding the police would actually look like in a city like Halifax. Your team wrote in the report that defunding isn't just about taking away resources, which is often how people think of it, but it's really about returning those resources. So I thought we could start there and you could tell us more about what you mean by that and what defund the police looks like. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to walk us back a little bit because the first thing I think that comes up when you say defunding is now we have this culture war over the term, right? So a lot of people are like, well, I just don't like defunding. It's really offensive. You should call it something else. Um, of course, this isn't a new concept. So the pretense that this is somehow radical and new is really ahistorical. Andrea Ritchie has pointed out that all social movements and political movements have been accompanied by defunding demands. Um, in enslavement, there was a big boycott campaign, one of the largest boycott campaigns in history, which was the boycott of sugar. And the slogan for that was, in every grain of sugar, a drop of blood. And white women, in particular, as the main purchasers of their households, were encouraged to not buy sugar from slavery. So that was a defunding campaign. We defunded South Africa during apartheid. The Panthers had a defunding platform in the 10-point plan. They said, take money away and give it to jobs. This really, really isn't new. So we have this new pretense that defunding is negative, that you can't do it, that this is some strange thing, when in fact it is always accompanied. I've been pointing out lately, like, what did the government do in Ottawa when they wanted to stop the convoy? They froze the money. They defunded the convoy. Like, that's the first thing you do. So that's the first part just to say that this is actually a really necessary component of any kind of political movement. What we fund, we value, and what we fund has power. So when people say they don't want to defund or they can't defund or they don't understand defunding, what they really mean is they're not interested in actually removing any power from the police. And so what we're talking about in the report, as you said, is not only saying this is actually really possible, so this pretense 
that this can't be done and it's just a fantasy doesn't really exist because here's all the ways we can do it. And then as we said, the second part is let's stop pretending this is somehow a negative attack because it's what it's really doing is if we want to call it reallocating, redistributing, retasking, it's taking that money and putting it where it can actually do some good, where it can prevent harm and violence, where it can go into communities, where people with the actual expertise or ability to deal with these issues can have that money. So one of the things I've really trying to be kind of pushing right now is saying, I don't have a problem with radical politics, but I don't actually think defunding is radical. I think it's quite common sense. It's, it's quite basic. Like if the police aren't accountable, if they have huge budgets, if we don't really know what they do with them, if the civilian oversight agencies aren't capable of controlling them, then why are we giving them money? And why don't we do something else with that money? And I see Pam nodding along. So I'm going to stop talking because I don't want to get a, give a 219-page speech to start us off. But that's my initial framing. Uh, I, I want to come to you in a second, Pam. But, uh, Elle, I know one thing you're pretty passionate about is when communities that don't get the kinds of investments in their in social services and other services that they need, they kind of have to take things into the, into their own hands and start fundraising for themselves. And I know there's one group in particular you feel pretty passionate about, uh, the Hot Cocoa Boys. So I wondered if you could tell us about that. Yeah, so this is part of this thing that's treated as normal in the news. So we've been seeing stories out of the U.S., like, because um, kids have like lunch money debts in the U.S. This is what a vicious society we live in. And then they'll have these stories about, oh, children fundraise to pay off the lunch debts of other children in this school. And you're like, why don't you just cancel the debt? Like you made that debt up. So this idea of children now being like put to work doing child labor for their communities is absolutely ridiculous. And it's treated as inspirational and normal. So in Halifax, there's this group of children um, and they're called the Hot Cocoa Boys. And then there's also girls as well, another group of kids. And they're literally, so the boys are selling, they sold lemonade in the summer, and now they're selling a hot cocoa mix. They've raised $27,000. And they're like, we're using this to build a basketball court in our community and a music studio. And I'm like, these are recreational facilities. The city should be providing this. This, mind you, is the same neighborhood that has money to advocate for placing surveillance cameras in the corners. There's a community police office. Um, these are, of course, highly street checked and police neighborhoods, which we have the money for. And then we have these like young kids, like teenagers, young teenagers that are going out and hustling money and putting it towards their own communities while the police are asking for a two million plus dollar increase. And that is absolutely absurd. And it shows you how much we've lost our way. And, and just to say, I'm not critiquing the children here. Obviously, these kids love their communities. They're passionate and committed and they want to do something. But that money should be going to their school education. It could be going for them doing all kinds of things. It should not be going to filling in the gaps to pay for recreation facilities because our police budget dwarfs every single other budget, including our budget for recreation and well-being. And the very things that prevent crime are the very things that we're like, why don't we send some kids out to work for it? And I just think it's completely absurd. Yeah. Um, I want to bring you in, you know, for Indigenous peoples, the RCMP and provincial police, too, have basically for a long time acted as, you know, private like security troops for resource extraction companies. And we've seen that recently in Wet'suwet'en territory, for example. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what defunding the police would mean for Indigenous communities. Well, right off the hop, it's dismantled the RCMP. I don't want the RCMP defunded. The RCMP is toxic. 
It's criminal. It's corrupt. It's sexually violent. It's racist. It's homophobic. It's all of those things. And not just because I said it, but when you have a former Supreme Court of Canada justice investigating the RCMP and saying the RCMP can't fix itself and that their investigators were shocked and stunned at the level of sexual assaults, violent sexual assaults by RCMP officers on their own female officers? What do you think that means for vulnerable people in society who aren't packing a weapon and mace and batons and everything else to defend themselves? And so you think about the many, 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 many reports, whether it's Human Rights Watch reports or Amnesty International reports or individual reports of Indigenous women especially being sexually assaulted, stalked by RCMP officers, them failing to properly investigate or even open files on murder to missing Indigenous women and girls, and the way that the RCMP have been involved in criminal activity over the years. Think about it. I mean, they were like planting explosions to try to make it look like other people were doing something wrong. During Gustafson Lake, you have RCMP videos of them saying, yeah, we're experts at smear campaigns and misinformation. I mean, They've been problematic for a long time. So defund the police, it may mean taking resources away from other provincial or municipal police forces, but for the RCMP, it's got to go. We're obviously going to talk a lot more about um, some of the questions around um, resource extraction and land and the RCMP's role in it in our second segment. But I want to bring you in, Martin. I mentioned earlier that there's this growing support from uh, the public for defunding the police, but at the same time, we're seeing police budgets in cities across Canada actually go up. And there's a graph that I want you to look at, and it's it shows police budgets that were approved in 2021. And the relevant bar for us to look at is the red one. It's uh, basically the percentage increases in police spending and You can see that in every major city in Canada, there's been an increase. And sometimes it's pretty significant, like it's uh, 8% in Vancouver or 7% in Montreal. So it looks pretty much like more of the status quo for the police. Um, And I'm wondering what you think are the obstacles that need to be overcome to translate the demand for defund into, you know, far-reaching change. Well, I mean, most of the increases we're seeing on this graph are just like the arbitrated or regular wage increases that police get. And while, you know, the graph might be dismaying to some, it's also important to note that in places like Edmonton, Calgary and and Ottawa, even bigger increases uh, to budgets were blocked by activists. And we're also seeing increasing funding for alternative responses to 911 calls. But I think the truth is, is like winning radical change is difficult. And The political establishment has been extremely busy trying to channel the movement energy into much safer options. So, you know, we've seen everything from Trudeau taking a knee to much, you know, hand-wringing by the establishment about a supposed racial reckoning that we're undergoing. And then on the policy level, we've seen moves towards, you know, uh, body cams for cops and uh, more diverse hires and anti-racism and de-escalation trainings. But the point is, is like a strict regimen of you know, sensitivity classes is not somehow going to change the essential function of the police, which is to essentially serve as enforcers of a fundamentally unjust, 
exploitative and unequal society. And you really can't change that function unless you change the broader society. And I think that's the principal obstacle to defunding and dismantling the police. I mean, after all, imagine like, what would the power structure do if you know, a gentrifying neighborhood needs homeless people to be cleansed or, you know, workers go on a wildcat strike when they have shoddy work conditions or indigenous peoples reassert control over their traditional territories or uh, a racialized person simply wants to enjoy leisure in public space, right? The reality is, is that bosses and, you know, housing developers and government officials won't sit idly by while police are like, you know, pouring over their Robin D'Angelo white fragility text, right? They have a they have a core function and they're going to serve it. And I don't think, I don't think that means we stop demanding for the abolition of police, but you know, we work to stop the hikes to bloated budgets. We chip away at the scope of police power, detask their ability for instance to to be the first responders to mental health crises for instance. And we're already seeing wins. I mean, remarkably in the last year or two, activists have gotten cops out of schools in places across the country. But I think we have to realize that like, while we advocate for the you know, moral necessity of defunding the police, we need people to understand that its full realization is impossible without a broader social transformation. The fight to defund the police needs to be connected to you know, a wider fight to challenge the system of exploitation that cops fundamentally serve and protect. And I think the more people realize that, the stronger our movements become. And then the balance of forces change. And I think things are politically feasible to the extent that the balance of forces change. And that can only be transformed by struggle. And that's what essentially changes that equation and makes, makes different things you know, politically possible. It's interesting when you mentioned the, the hikes to police budgets and, Elle, you mentioned the, the recent convoy. Uh, you know, when the convoy, uh, the occupation of Ottawa was happening, um, which, you know, as we all know, finally ended in late February. But for weeks, the cops weren't doing anything to enforce the laws. In many cases, they were actually even enabling the occupation. And while this was happening, we were hearing a lot of people say, including even some progressives, like, why aren't police doing their jobs? The police should be doing their jobs. I wondered, Elle, for you, what, what, what you saw uh, while that was all happening and, and what are the lessons that you think we should be taking away from, from the conduct we saw by the police at that time? This really shows the psychological hold that the police have on us. So even as people had this extreme obvious example that the police weren't going to do anything, we still believe in this myth that there is some kind of policing that could be taking place. And the police were actually doing their jobs because their job is to uphold white supremacy. There's nothing that was taking place. And we know that the police were not doing their jobs on purpose. We know they always had the powers to ticket and didn't do it. They always had the power to tow. They didn't do it and claimed that the tow truck companies, you know, just couldn't tow vehicles, which is absurd. Um, they claim, you know, they all had the power to stop fuel from coming in. And we know they can do all those things because they've done it within 24 hours when it's black and indigenous people. In Ottawa, just a couple of years ago, when there was a defunding protest where activists were outside of the police station doing a sit-in to advocate for defunding of the budget, they in fact had already booked a meeting with city councillors the next day and the police shut them down and arrested like a dozen activists. 
um, while they're already in the process of negotiating with city council. So when it was black and indigenous people, there was no hesitation and there was no problem with policing. And we've all pointed this out. This isn't new. But the point is that it's not an inconsistency. A lot of people sort of presented as some kind of like dunk on the hypocrisy. Oh, they'll do this to black people and they won't do it to white people. And it's like, yes, exactly. That's not an inconsistency. That's what it's built to do in the exact same way as the protesters are there to advocate for white freedom while also advocating for the borders to be closed when it's the movement of other people. The same people that are in that convoy have never, of course, spoken about the problems of street checks or the Indian Act or any of the ways that black and indigenous lives and the lives of other people are constantly regulated and mandated in Canada. I've been saying we've had a black skin mandate in this country for hundreds of years and nobody cares or notices. So I think people still get attached to this ideal idea of policing, that in some world there could be a way that the police would have done their jobs. And it's like the Spider-Man meme, right? Like the cops and military were running the convoy. Like, you know, it's like pointing at each other. Why don't we have more cops and police stopping the, like more cops and soldiers stopping the convoy? And of course, the final thing I'll say here is we know that the police love security theater. So we also know that the police want a crisis because crisis leads to authoritarian crackdowns, which is exactly what we got. The Emergency Act, you know, this idea that we need to bring in all these officers. And then for two days, we had this orgy of policing where everyone was glued to their screens, to Twitter, to live feeds, watching the police advance and breathlessly narrating this. And that is what the police love. They always do this. I mean, this is why they have heavy weapons. This is why they want tanks. This is why they come with eight vans when they don't need to, to like put a ticket on someone's tent. They always want this visible threat. And the idea that then, you know, they say, look, there's so much danger. We had to close off all these streets. So we had to come in this force. So it is extremely performative. You know, as people love to talk about us as being like performative activists, you know, this is what the police are, is performative. And they obviously wanted to force a crisis for political reasons, for internal reasons within the force, um, you know, and then of course, to advocate for more officers and more funding. And so in the end, of course, they turned out to be perfectly capable of doing the job once it was expedient for them to do it. So what we sort of saw was on the one hand, um, yes, you know, people, even ordinary people were like, why are we paying these people 300 million plus to do nothing? But then it culminated in those same people often being like, yes, I'm so glad we got in more officers. Like, I'm so glad we had this crackdown. And that really shows us how difficult it is, not just politically to sustain this idea of getting rid of the police or taking their powers or defunding them, but in ordinary people, how everybody just defaults this idea that the police are necessary and that what we really need is, you know, daddy to come in. And, you know, like clean things up and whether that's COVID and like, let's police COVID or, of course, the policing of everybody who's not the white public or this situation. So it was both. Yeah, like we had sort of both ends, like at, at points you were like, good, you're getting it. Yes, don't give these people a budget. But then also, of course, people's just attachment at the same time as they were going out in their own neighborhoods and effectively stopping this without the police and without three hundred million dollar plus budgets. So, you know, um, this is part of the problem of defunding is it even if you had the political will, you also have to shift a public that's being fed narratives of cops from the cop dog on Paw Patrol to, you know, like Playmobil jails to like cop Lego to the one third to 50 percent of media content that's like real crime, actual crime on the news, cop shows you know, detective, this and that, you know, like that's just so much into our culture that the police are just embedded into everything, including into ourselves. So 
until we really do that work to start getting people to reflect on why do you want the cops to come because there's someone living in a tent? Why do you think you need police because somebody's asking for change outside Tim Hortons? Like, what is it in us that thinks that it is necessary to constantly turn to this response? And as we turn to that response, we will fund that response. And then say, oh, you know, we just can't do without the police. We can't uh, possibly deal with unhoused people without ticketing them for tickets they'll never pay. So. A new, a new slogan for the movement, kill the cop in your head. Yeah, exactly. Or get it together, people. That should be ours. Yeah, maybe that's a bit more kosher. Al, <laughs> I mean, we, we talked about how in the popular imagination, we're starting to see what a defund movement could look like and what defunding the cops could look like. The convoy, you know, made the case for a lot of people that there are lo- there's lots of things that we think we rely on the cops to do, but we can do it ourselves. We can keep ourselves safe. Um, but you also wrote this really important piece um, that was published in The Breach last year about um, the dangers of um, the co-optation of Black Lives Matter by uh, neoliberal thinking and neoliberalism. And I wonder if you see any danger in how this, you know, the popular imagination about the defund movement um, could also be similarly co-opted and see its priorities shift. Yeah, I mean, one example we have of this is, you know, this people's sudden obsession with protecting Chief Slawley, right? Um, so, you know, you now have like black organizations being mad at other black people who were speaking up against policing in Ottawa and being like, you did your part to sabotage the chief. He's a black man. So this is one problem that we have. And we've seen this in the police's public rhetoric, for example, that in Halifax, especially because I'm a black woman and I led a committee, a subcommittee that was talking about defunding, the cops have shifted their rhetoric to say that what we need police for is hate crimes, sexual assault. And then they cited like search and rescue because a black kid went missing like once. So, you know, they will always shift that rhetoric. So now the cops are apparently, you know, we need them or we'll be all raped, right? And oh, the, the cops are now an anti-racist force, even though, of course, hate crimes, like literally the police commit hate crimes. But now we're supposed to believe that the solution to racism in society is more police. And unfortunately, a lot of people in our own communities come in and advocate for this stuff and push for it and actually undermine movements that are saying, look, like we can't rely on the police for this and we need to disinvest from this. And so a really good example is, yeah, like black organizations in Ottawa now turning the discourse to being like, oh, you know, the chief was sabotaged. We need to support the chief. Don't accept his resignation. It's racist. And of course it's racist. Like, that's no surprise. But this is like the scorpion. You know, you knew what I was when I picked it up. Like, if you're a black police chief and you want to head up the most anti-black, you know, organization in the country, don't be surprised when it burns you when you touch the stove. Like, I just can't have a lot of empathy for that. And of course, this man, yes, the the officers were putting Nazi memes out about him and they were constantly undermining. You know why? Because the police are a white supremacist force. So the solution isn't let's protect the black chief. The solution is like, yes, black people, this is who they are. You cannot reform them. So that's part one. And then the other part is exactly this. So we've seen, especially as, um, this language war happens over defunding, for example. Our city council, we had a council say, you know, that they're like very offended by the term defunding and they don't mind detasking. So, you know, we're already having this kind of like language war because, of course, detasking doesn't actually imply a reduction. It's just a shifting. Right. And while that is necessary and it is a step, this is the difference between what we call non-reformist reforms and reformist reforms. Right. So non-reformist reforms are recognizing that You know, we can't get everything right away, but the things that we advocate for are substantial steps to reducing the power. So that is like removing cops from mental health. 
performance reforms are things like body cameras, where you're like, okay, we're actually just like give them more money. Let's give them money to train that actually end up perpetuating the life of the institution. And so we are very much seeing that now, like our city council and board is using this very public rhetoric right now, being like policing needs to shift. We need to take charge of this. This is what's coming in the future and then still voting for the budget. And somehow both saying they back the defunding report and then saying that because it would be irresponsible, because you know, one of the things we said is we haven't been funding social organizations for so long that we can't simply just download things right away without talking to those organizations, resourcing them correctly and having that conversation. So they've used that to claim that therefore our report means that we can't defund right now and they have to continue giving them a budget. So we see this very willful twisting and this idea that just because something might be complex because the police are embedded, therefore what we should just do is, is keep funding it and keep investing in this and somehow miraculously in the future, it will just all go away. So. Yeah. And as I said, this all reflects the will that people actually aren't interested in, in challenging authority. People aren't interested in changing the status quo. And people are interested in black and indigenous people being policed and controlled and disciplined through whatever forms. And we don't want to admit that. We want to pretend that this is just about, you know, the fine grains of, of what police tasks should be and not about a fundamental power of settler colonialism and the inability and unwillingness of us to ever address or recognize that in Canada. And so I guess as a final question and to, to get us to wrap on the segment, um, what will it take to, to undo that kind, of, that kind of thinking and to create the grounds for defund the police to become, to gain new ground basically and, and win more support? And that's a question to you, Elle, and anyone else who wants to jump in? I mean, one thing is building solidarity movements, genuine worker movements that ally with indigenous movements, black movements, people with disabilities of police, people who use drugs of police, people with mental health of police, sex workers of police. There's so many movements that can connect here and actually have those conversations and share those interests. Another thing we talk about in the final chapter of our report, and not to say our report is like the be all and end all of talking about defunding, but we talk about things like participatory budgeting. And a lot of people were like, well, what does that have to do with defunding? But our point is when communities start having control over budgets and start actually thinking about how money is allocated and getting to say, well, if I was taking this two million and getting it for myself, what would I put it into? Um, then people start to be able to think differently, that budgeting doesn't just happen above your head and just some inevitability that it has to go to the police. You can actually say, well, yeah, I actually think that my community needs a basketball court and I don't want you know, my kid to pay for it. So why don't we take that money and do that? So communities can be very directly involved in political processes. And then just on a really like policy based thing, police boards, police boards do no governance at all. Um, police boards tend to rely on the, the judiciary, right? So like, we just wait for judges to make decisions and judges are always conservative and they defer to the police. Um, so an example is like the growth of the RT teams, like SWAT teams, right? That have like, um, like just exploded in, in like the last 10 years. You know, we just have this massive use of these teams in all these situations that you were never supposed to be in and the courts won't control it. And police boards aren't creating any policy, any accountability. So as people, people need to get into police governance. Like really, that's just a serious thing. People need to go and be asking police serious questions, be asking for evidence and really be doing their job for accountability. And, and not in like, again, a reformist way, like all we need is more inquiries, but in a real way to say that um, we have to be able to take some kind of responsibility as people in a society. We have to recognize that we have these powers and then go and exercise them. So that's just a really policy nerd thing. But 
Um, we have to really look at police governance and put it back into the hands of actual people. Martin, Pam, any any final thoughts before we switch gears? I just think, you know, everything that's been said really goes to the core point that every inquiry, every recommendation, they pretty much make the same recommendations over, like all the easy stuff. I mean, you can rhyme them off the top of your head, cultural awareness, training, diversity hires, like all that. And it hasn't worked. But instead of like looking at that and reflecting and saying all these things that we say are going to work don't work and things are actually getting worse, what do we need to do? Oftentimes, we wait. We hope that if we just do public education, if we just wait until society gets on board, then we're going to be able to make all these miraculous changes. But that's not how social movements or human rights or anything substantial in humanity has ever worked. You have to do the radical thing, you have to do the revolution, and then society is forced into doing something different. And it's never everybody. I think that our death knoll is us sitting back and waiting until people are ready and fully educated and can see it and accept it and we have all the right conditions. The conditions are right. People die at the hands of police at these, you know, unwieldy, unlawful, above the law outlaws. And it's about time that we dealt with them. Thank you all. I want to take us now to the other topic that we're discussing tonight, which is land back. It's a slogan we've been hearing a lot of uh, over the last few years, although, of course, the demand itself um, of returning stolen indigenous land uh, isn't itself a new one. But the slogan, land back, and the growing movement behind it, it's put the question of land rights on the agenda in a whole new way. And Pam, I wondered if I could start by asking you if you could make a short two-minute pitch for, you know, make the case for why land back. Well, I mean, right off the hop, it's not Canada's land. So the right thing to do when you steal something is to give it back. You know, when you think about everything in this country, all of the wealth, all of the genocide, all of the slavery that happened, nothing here on this territory was earned by these colonial governments. It was stolen or enforced and giving land back is how you make reparations. See, because here's the thing about truth, justice, and reconciliation. You know, you got to get to the truth and uncover all of these land thefts. But there's the justice part, where you stop stealing the lands and you stop destroying them against the will of Indigenous peoples. And, you know, the reconciliation part is reparations. I hate that we even call it reconciliation. It should be called reparations. How do you make up for what you've done. Well, you have to put the person back in the position they would have been, but for the crime or the breach or the harm that was done. Canada is mostly crown lands, quote unquote. Uh, they could easily be given back to First Nations. And land back is land back, resources back, respect for sovereignty, governance, jurisdiction, and respecting our right to say yes or no to what happens on our lands. All of this can be easily done. It's not even radical and not a single private citizen has to move from their home. This is, doesn't involve private lands whatsoever. 
I think sometimes in the media, you know, we hear these stories about individual families or farmers returning tracts of land, and, and people often make that assumption that it's about you know, people kind of turning over their private pieces of land. And I, I wonder what, what you think about that and whether to you those kinds of responses also fit under land back. Of course, I think everything that has to do with reconciliation and reparations with Indigenous peoples involves everybody. You know, we often look to or blame just government, but who's working in government? Who's controlling government? It's Canadians. So we like to see these things as separate, but they're actually all together. And yes, number one, right off the hop, this is government, federal, provincial, municipal, they territorial, they need to be addressing land back, resources back, self-determination. But Individual Canadians are a core part of it because, A, they're part of the government making these decisions or they're part of the police force enforcing those decisions or they themselves have lots of land that they can give back, land that's been in their families, lots and lots. Think of universities, think of corporations, think of businesses and industries who've been buying up lands for generations and they use it for a multitude of purposes or they just hold on to it those lands could be given back. In fact, I would say there should be a moratorium on all land transfers in this country until we figure out what's going to happen, not on the private land sale, but on the corporate, on the industrial, on the extractive and on the government side of things. There should be no land transfers, no land dispossessions, no land sales, no leases, no authorizations until we address land back. Um, and Pam, you know, I mentioned that um, land back as a slogan has been um, gathering a lot of steam, gaining a lot of momentum, and it's it's uh, a, a very popular slogan within grassroots Indigenous movements. But it's also become so popular that even the Liberal government now feels the need to respond to it. So I, I want to play us a clip of Mark Miller, actually. Um, he's the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. And uh, he had this to say last fall, and I hope you can see it. Let's have a look. Mr. Carolyn Bennett has been demoted and replaced at Crown Indigenous Relations by Mark Miller, who raised some eyebrows and expectations when he said, The relationship has been broken be because of land, land theft, and it's time to give land back. So that was Mark Miller uh, speaking last fall. Pam, what's your response to Mark Miller now supporting giving land back? Wouldn't that be great if he meant that and that he was speaking on behalf of cabinet and that he had an agreement with all the provinces and territories and municipalities to actually put that into place? Do I think they have that? Um, I don't see the words land back in any of the ministerial mandate letters from Trudeau. Now, maybe I just missed it, but I didn't see land back in the first set of mandate letters, the second or this one. So rhetoric is important. You know, without a doubt, it's important. We went from the Harper era of Indigenous peoples are threats to national security to we need to move on reconciliation, we need to do nation to nation, and now clearly uh, land back. But where this government gets stuck all the time is the commitment side and then the action. So the rhetoric is there. Where's the commitment? Well, it's certainly not in any agreements and it's certainly not in any mandate letters and it's certainly not in any MOUs. So then there's no real commitment for it. There's no timeline. There's no schedule. There's no resources. 
which means ultimately we're not going to see any action on it. And that's what's concerning me. It gives the false assurance to the public that they get it. You know, they're echoing back, you know, hashtag land back. Everything's going to be good. Don't worry. This government's got it. And we keep telling Canadians, no, they, they don't have it. They don't have it. Keep in mind, they haven't even taken action on the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls and the finding that they're guilty of ongoing genocide. Uh, if, if they're not prepared to do that, like the literally the worst crime on the planet, I have my suspicions that they're probably not going to be taking any hardcore action on land back, though I wish they would. Martin, what about you? Um, what do you think this says about the Liberals' broader approach to the question of Indigenous rights? Well, as, as Pam was, was outlining, Liberals have like a unparalleled rhetorical dexterity. You know, over the years, they have managed to take the language of liberation, you know, terms like nation to nation, self-government, reconciliation, even decolonization, and basically turn them into contraptions of conquest using them to cover for whatever their pre-existing agenda is. And I guess what's especially rich about Mark Miller's attempted appropriation of land back is that the machinery of government that liberals are overseeing in law, in legislation, in, in practice and policy is geared in its entirety, not to the return of land, but to the continuing dispossession of it. It's not something like that's happened in the past. It's happening now, it's ongoing. 30, 30 minutes from Montreal to the West, you know, there's uh, condo developments encroaching on the territory, the Mohawks of Gunasadage. You know, a few hours north, it's, you know, mining on Algonquin land. A few hours to the east, it's clear-cut logging on Atikamekw territory. And this is the story across the entire country. And it's not simply something the government kind of washes its hands of. It's land theft by commission. You know, in areas where First Nations have never signed historic treaties, so large parts of Atlantic Canada, large parts of Quebec, areas in Ontario, most of British Columbia, you know, the Liberal government currently, alongside the provinces, are basically squeezing Indigenous communities into negotiations whose end goal is uh, this very ugly term called extinguishment, which basically means that in exchange for some compensation and individual property, First Nations have to basically give up in perpetuity their land rights to 90% of their traditional territories. Also that the government can, can secure uh, what's known as certainty, which is another euphemism basically for untrammeled corporate extraction and commercial development. And you know, for a long time, these processes were given like opaque and eye glazing terms like comprehensive land claims, all the better to basically ensure that non-native people would tune out. And I think since Idle No More, when a lot of non-native pe non people finally started tuning in, um, and Justin Trudeau got elected. We've seen a kind of repackaging of this entire agenda. Um, some of us have been calling it the reconciliation industry. You know, a lot of official tears from our weeper in chief and public <laughs> money and cultural celebration. All of which though really has ensured that this machinery of dispossession just kind of continues to grind along efficiently. And I think the thing that's wonderful about Land Back is that you know, in its like moral clarity and really it's like, it's magnificent concision. It's like two words, two syllables, eight letters. It just, it just sweeps aside all of this political goop. I mean, it's not a surprise that it's young indigenous people who came up with the term because it basically calls bullshit on the government. Um, it says very simply, you know, this country wouldn't exist and continue to exist without the continuing dispossession of indigenous peoples. And 
there's no way that we can have, indigenous peoples can have, um, you know, a proper economic base and a nationhood that deserves the name unless we give a very good chunk of that land back. Exactly. And I just wanted to follow up on something that Martin said, um, because there were, in fact, lots of historic treaties in the, what's now known as the Maritimes, pre-Confederation treaties, but none of them had any land surrenders or alleged land surrenders. And in fact, even after we signed those treaties of supposed peace and friendship, military alliance, uh, trade, they issued scalping bounties because we wouldn't move from the land. So, you know, at every point in time in history, they say one thing, let's work together in peace, let's work together as nations, land back, recognize your treaties. They do the exact opposite. And I think it's important, and I think more and more Canadians are seeing it, that there is a, a huge dissonance between what they say and what they do, and it's a lot easier to catch them on it. And we need to just press them, land back, okay, when, what's the schedule, how much, which First Nations are getting their land back and resources back, and a process to recognize our uh, sovereignty and jurisdiction, because their Bill C-15 that implemented the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the core foundation of that is governance and ownership and benefit of our own lands, all of our traditional territories, not just the reserves. So now it's a legal imperative. I mean, it always was, but it's even more so now in addition to Indigenous laws and Canadian laws. And I want to see what's your plan. My cynical take is give it a few years and there'll be a land back committee chaired yeah. by some indigenous oil execs and they'll <laughs> designate some land to build a cultural prison. <laughs> and they'll be like, our recommendation is to build a culturally appropriate prison with like indigenous wardens. <laughs> I actually, I just, I want to take a second to put in a plug for an excellent video, Pam, that you did uh, for the breach on land back. I want to encourage everyone to go find it on our YouTube channel and watch it. And one of the things that you brought up in that video was making the connection between land back and how we confront the climate emergency. And, you know, can, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what what having more land under First Nation control would mean for, you know, resource extraction for, for the future of our, the, the climate and our planet. Well, think about it, not just here on Turtle Island, Canada, United States, Mexico. Think about South, South America, Australia, New Zealand, sovereign Hawaii, Samoa, everywhere where there's indigenous peoples, everywhere there, where there, there has been violent colonization and dispossession of lands. Think about the people who are putting their bodies and freedoms on the line to advocate for climate action to protect the lands and the waters and the air and the birds and the plants and everything for all of humanity, for all living things. You don't, it's not the colonizers, it's the indigenous peoples because they come from the land. They're willing to die for the land. And so if you think about it, right now, Canadians have zero control over what happens, whether a massive project goes ahead or not, whether lands are, in irrevocably damaged, waters contaminated, you know, southern resident killer whales forever wiped off the face of the earth. But who does? We at least have indigenous rights. We at least have uh, processes. We have indigenous laws that could very well stop those projects, 
delay those projects. Um, and if all if our lands were under our control, if our resources were under our control, and we were governing those territories, even jointly governing, you can bet that Canada and the United States and all of these other countries would look drastically different. And that's how land back not only does it not impact individuals in the sense of we're not talking about kicking people out of their houses, we're talking about saving the futures for themselves and their kids and their grandkids and everything on this planet. So there, there's literally very few movements that have that such a substantial potential to address climate change than making sure that Indigenous peoples have their lands and resources back and they have governing powers over their territories, you would see a marked difference. And I think that's one of the key solutions. In addition to all of our social movements coming together on, you know, on this basis of, of human rights and taking care of one another. Mm -hmm. Actually, to, to follow up on that with you, Al, I'm wondering what you think for the vision of Land Back to keep winning more support, what kinds of alliances and solidarities would we need um, to help make that happen? Yeah, as Pam mentioned, this is also a global movement. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to shift the conversation from the centering Indigenous people in Canada, but I do want to point out that this is a movement in South Africa. This is a movement in many places. And of course, is always treated as hostile and violent, right? So um, when you talk about so, I mean, in South Africa, there's a lot of misinformation about that, this idea that, oh, you just want to commit genocide on white farmers. And you actually have, like, white South African farmers claiming refugee asylum in other countries based on this idea that, you know, they were being persecuted. When, in fact, what people are advocating for is shouldn't the black workers on these farms perhaps have an equal share of the land that they're working on? Shouldn't they see part of the profits, which is just a basic worker principle? So, first of all, I think it, it, we can understand it also through that lens. Right. Why should indigenous people not profit and live well off? Like we understand that when it shares in a company, but then we pretend not to understand it when it's something so fundamental as land. So um, I think part of the problem is always this like scaremongering. And of course, this idea that white people are just like entitled to everything and anything that you're chipping away at white people's power is violent and, you know, yeah. genocide on white people and like the ridiculous thing, you know. So and then I think with black people, I think about like North Preston and land title. You know, black people understand these issues as well, environmental racism in black communities. And part of our work is to also recognize that what does it mean for us to work with indigenous people around those issues? Because, you know, a lot of this land is granted by the crown to black people or, you know, has a tie to enslavement. And I think part of us getting land justice as black people is recognizing that that has to take place within a frame of indigenous sovereignty, right? The, the people we should be appealing to isn't necessarily a white government. We should be saying to like the Mi'kmaq people, what do we do about land title in this community? And, and we've seen Mi'kmaq people be so generous with issues like Africville and say, hey, we would give you this, you know, like we want you to live well. So um, we have seen throughout history, indigenous peoples have been so incredibly generous because it's not about owning the land under capitalist private property, which is also what leads to policing, which we were talking about before. It's about sharing and using the land in a good way and in relationship and in a sustainable way. And how can any of us not want that to take place? How does that not relate to our own justice movements? I mean, I made the joke about prisons, but prison abolition actually is about this issue. 
right? No prisons on stolen land, no justice on stolen land. Prisons are directly connected to the way that we've stolen resources from communities and then criminalized people for defending that land and then created human surplus and then put those people into prisons. There are direct lines we can connect. So again, like, it shouldn't, I think it, it's framed to us as somehow hostile to the rest of our interests, that if indigenous people get land back, exactly, they'll be your house, or, well, then you'll get kicked out. And, like, show me one example in history of indigenous people, like, <laughs> running anybody off the land. The people who have castle doctrine and stand your ground are white people. And, again, so directly connected to these white supremacist laws around private property and policing and criminalization. So if we want to fight things like criminalization, we have to tie it back to property and back to land. And then we begin to understand that. John Locke says, you know, how does something become like a basic democratic theory that you'll study in like white political theory? And he's like, how do you, um, you know, how do you, how does something become my property? Well, if I pick a, an apple, it becomes mine. And this is the logic that we start using for land. If you're not using it, it's not yours. And that is an ideology that leads to extraction, that leads to the overuse of land, that leads to environmental destruction, as opposed to saying that, Land is also itself. It exists in a good for itself. It is there. It is actually needs to be there. Like things need to grow. Like you need trees. Like this is, it's just like basic stuff. So um, I think fundamentally, this is about capitalism. This is about settler colonialism. And this is, as Pam said, also about the environment. All things that keep us all surviving, that are good for workers, that are good for everybody. So um, instead of seeing it as some kind of like indigenous only project in terms of the effects, it's actually a global project of sustainability. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Martin, what you think about, you know, for land back to gain ground in the more short term and, and medium term, what some of the obstacles would you think are to that at the moment? Because, you know, the, the, the vision we're all talking about is very expansive and it is addressing some of the core kind of foundational systems that are embedded in, in the society we live in. So I wonder what you see as, as some obstacles to, to, to gaining ground. I mean, I guess the first thing to say would be that, like, at the community level, a lot of First Nations are already taking their land back, you know? In Six Nation, there, there was that um, really important victory uh, at the 1492 land back lane just last year. I mean, the Mi'kmaq are taking their oceans back. Grassy Narrows is getting their rivers cleaned up, so they're taking their rivers back. And there's there's lots of examples of communities across the country. I can think of Kanahus Manual and, and the Shoshwap activists basically building tiny homes in the pathway of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So there's lots of examples on a First Nation and community level where people are already succeeding. But certainly at the at the national level, in terms of a new deal for, for Indigenous peoples, I do think, as Elle was saying, like the demand for land back implicates and challenges a very, it's a very far reaching and systemic challenge, right? To the logic of capitalism, the logic of settler colonialism, uh, the logic of endless resource extraction. And so I think we have to be clear eyed about how, how far reaching that challenge is, even while we underline its moral and ecological um, imperative. So, you know, we, we published an article on the breach a few months back describing what we can conceive of a kind of like maximal program for um, for land back, which would just involve large, you know, tracts of land being returned. We tried also to kind of sketch out what a kind of minimal program for uh, land back might look like, kind of transitional demands that could be won, much in the same way that defund the police is looking for those kind of key transitional demands that chip away the power of the police and detask them. You know, Pam has mentioned like, 
crown land. And I think that's a very strategic demand because who, who in this country increasingly still feels that the depraved and distant royal family actually has some claim to the lands in this country? And we're talking about close to 90% of the land. It's a huge tract of land. And could we imagine, for instance, in majority indigenous territories, you know, provincial order governments that are, are basically transferred land and resource rights? That to me seems like a very plausible, like short-term demand that could be won. And I think some of the challenges are certainly at the national level, like a few years back, I was part of a, a network of indigenous communities in land struggle, one of the non-natives um, member of the, the organizing committee that was trying to link up often quite isolated indigenous communities in land struggle at a national level. Because often what happens is these communities will get picked off by police brutality, by police repression, um, and get thrown into the court processes. So I think there is a real challenge to build a kind of coordinated movement across the country so that as non-native people and as non-native organizations, we're not just responding to isolated crises, whether in Wet'suwet'en or in Six Nations, but that there is a proactive agenda set by a coordinated indigenous movement that can actually ensure that, you know, non-native organizations are proactively doing self-education around, you know, land rights issues. And we can actually build enduring popular power to actually force the government's hand in a meaningful way. I don't want us to to close this without talking about the recent confirmations, Pam, of mass uh, graves of First Nations children on the grounds of former residential schools. Um, I'm wondering how, for you, Pam, this intersects with the question of land and whether you think the reckoning, as the media likes to call it, that we've seen over the last year around uh, the legacy of residential schools will have any impact on the receptiveness of people towards slogans like land back. Well, uh, Canada hasn't dealt with either its historic genocide or the ongoing genocide. And if you look at all of these unmarked graves that are being revealed all across the country, it's a real eye-opener about historic genocide and just how bad it was. And the link to land these children, in some cases, were buried by other children. There are no markers parents weren't informed, they just went missing, that the land was abused in such a horrible way. You know, it's it's death of land when that happens too. And so it also crosses over with who are the landowners in Canada? So the real landowners are Indigenous peoples. And of course, the Crown took those lands, dispossessed those lands. But Aside from private individuals who live in their homes with their families, who else hoarded and dispossessed land and misused land for these purposes? The churches, especially the Catholic Church. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar organization. So in terms of truth and reconciliation, in terms of making amends, one of the million things that needs to be done is these churches need to be giving land back they need to be giving all of the records back. They need to be sharing in the resources that they made off the backs of these children and their forced labor and all of the money they make from their churches on the land that is indigenous land. There is so much more 
churches can do than just an apology and and giving information. And it's directly tied to land back. And it's not just the Catholic Church. It's every institution and organization. It's every business or entity that holds thousands and thousands of acres of Indigenous lands that they were given or bought for a dollar and made a whole bunch of wealth. Because land back is about land back. It's also about natural resources back, but it's also about resources back. Like literally, we should be getting a percentage of every bit of wealth from these territories that came at the cost of our people so that we can help rebuild our communities and and help provide supports for these families in ways that the government can never do. Well, we have to end it there, but um, thank you so much, all three of you, for joining and sharing your thoughts tonight. Pam Palmiter from Toronto, Elle Jones in Halifax, Martin Lukacs here in Montreal. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of The Breach Show. We'll be back next week with both video and podcast. In the meantime, please share and subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and consider becoming a sustaining member of The Breach. Go to breachmedia.ca. I'm Donia Ziai, and I'll talk to you next week. And now my satiric take. So when <laughs> Harry married Megan, that was like a nightmare for light-skinned black women. Because all our moms were like, why didn't you? Like, my mom was like, he likes black women. You're prettier than Megan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, uh, when would I ever meet Harry? And she's like, I would love to be. Like, my mom would love to fucking be in the royal family and go and cut ribbons. And she was like so angry with me. And then she goes to me, you could have got Harry. And she's like, but you like to hang out in the gutter. <laughs> oh, no. Guys, I hope we're still recording because this is gold. <laughs> so then. In fantasy land, I could have got on Harry and then be like, give the land back. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. We missed it. We missed our chance to I radicalize know. Harry. Now all he's doing is complaining about his family problems. Megan could have got us the crown jewel. She could have got us lots of stuff. <laughs> yeah.